set the tone, and then we're going to go into Matthew chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, we read, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, but that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, that is, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between, the men, the, between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, in like manner also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of the overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach, not a drunk, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome not a lover of money. He must manage his own home well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if one does not know how to manage his own home, how will he care for, the, for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to too much wine, nor greedy, nor for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taking up in glory. Now there's a year's worth of teaching here. But for us to get the tone and what Timothy is trying to receive and what Paul is trying to tell us or tell him, we need to hear it. We need to hear it. 
When we think about our lives and we look at even our present day circumstances, for most of us, we could all put our fingers on certain things that we wish were different. That we would say if this was changed or that this was not here, it would be better for us and for those around us if we could just remove this obstacle or this health issue or this relationship or fix this problem or mend this matter, life would be great. And when we get those things, it's sort of like getting a check in the mail that you didn't know was coming or receiving a promotion at work or a raise it's like, wow, and we leave and we go and we're excited and we have a little bit of life in us and we praise God from whom all blessings flow. But it's not easy to praise God from whom all blessings flow when the blessings seem low. When the blessings seem hard. When the blessings are illness and famine and poverty and divorce. When the blessings are depression and despair, frustration and anger. And some people would say, well, what, what are you saying? Why would you call these blessings? For the scripture teaches, James the apostle would tell his fellow kinsmen in the faith. He would say that all good things come from the father of lights. Paul would then remind the people of Rome who were in Christ Jesus that God causes all things to work together for good. So even that which we would determine to be destructive and disastrous are all part of God's plan for our good. So even the negative, even the bad, even the suffering are part of God's blessings to us, gifts. One only has to look at the oldest writing in the scripture, that is the book of Job, and see that God is sovereign over even the manipulation and the movement of the enemy. And that even what Job lost, his friends, his wife, his children, his crops, his home, his wealth, his health. That God used it for Job's good and Job praised God in the end. He praised him. Beloved, knowing this does not take away our tears. It does not take away our angst. It does not take away our Hopelessness at times, but these powerful truths, if we are in the discipline of the gospel, will carry us through. Because Christ carries us through. He carries us through. And that is why Paul writes this letter to the elder Timothy of Ephesus. So that I, James the elder, appointed and called by the gospel and by the Lord Jesus Christ, for your sake, can look after your joy. And can help you as God has helped me. The purpose of this letter and purpose of this instruction is that what? That you ought to teach and know that one ought to know how to behave in the church. And look how he ends it over it. Chapter 1, verse 16. The mystery of godliness is displayed only in the person of Christ. Perfection is only found in Christ. Beloved, we, we've already seen that in chapter 1. We've already been reminded of that in every teaching. There is a huge problem in the church of the United States and even in the sovereign grace circles. And you heard me years and years ago, probably seven years ago maybe, 
use the adjective or use the moniker, if I can say it that way correctly, the evangelical cult. And inside that ideology, we see a lot of groups of people who identify as evangelical. And that doesn't mean every evangelical institution is a cult, but there is definitely a cult in evangelicalism. There's a cult in sovereign graceism. And it's a radicalized idea that everything must be exactly as we see it, as I see it, rather than how the scripture sees it. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit about politics for the first time ever. Not particular politics, but in general politics and the church's place in that monster as we've been commanded to pray for kings. The very fact that it's funny to some of us when we say we should pray for Joe Biden shows that we have a disconnect with the commands of Christ and the gospel of grace and the world around us. And it's okay. That's what we are. That's who we are. It's part of the nature that we live in. But beloved, righteousness is he who is manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. We are only righteous because Christ's perfection is credited to us. So in the best of days, the greatest Christian that you've ever known, the greatest example of godliness in human flesh outside of Christ is still not sufficient for righteousness and it will never be judged in any way except according to the law which is guilty. And though we may have scales of justice in our temporal society and we may have the idea that this crime or this sin or this wrongdoing is not as bad as this one and I would agree with us. In the economy of righteousness there is no scale. In the economy of grace, there is no law because justice is satisfied. That is the good news. That's what the gospel is. And so the gospel is not commanding us to get it right or die. The gospel is you can't get it right and you must get it right. So Christ got it right. He died. Now you live, you see. That's what it means to be crucified with Christ. He died. It counted as our death. Why did he die? As propitiation. To satisfy the wrath of God. Why does God have wrath? Who is he? He is righteousness. He is justice. So we look and, and we see the Bible. And so Paul is teaching Timothy and subsequent elders throughout the world and forever until Christ returns how to teach the church the disciplines of grace. And what was happening? Knuckleheads stirring division. Knuckleheads with their own opinions. Knuckleheads fighting against the knuckleheads. And a whole bunch of knuckleheads. If you want to know what that's a synonym for, just look it up. Google will tell you. And what the church should be doing first is that the elders are to teach the truth and to tell the church Simmer down, be quiet, and rest as we work through this by the power of Christ. 
when we are not in the discipline of grace, our flesh allows us and causes us to depart from the truth and to divorce intimacy and to destroy families. It ought not be the case for the church of Jesus Christ. And when someone hears that statement and they say, yeah, but they, they are indeed, by confession, the guilty party. Because anyone who says, yea, but they, are doing exactly what Adam did. Yeah, but the woman, you. Yeah, but the serpent, you. And then the enemy we see in Job. What? We see in the scripture, we see how Lucifer came to be an enemy. He thought in his heart. I'm as big a supermodel as God is. I deserve to stand on that stage and be seen. Look at me. Look at me. So what do we do? We're learning right now. We're learning the disciplines of the Christian life. Somebody says, well, that's not gospel preaching. Then it's no sense to be here. It is the gospel of who Christ is. It is the gospel of who Christ saved. It is the gospel of his mercy to us to give us the gift of faith, to rest in his sufficient work. And then it is God's sufficient grace and power that teaches us the so what's and the therefores that do not make us right before the Lord. But to ignore those therefores, to ignore the instruction of the New Testament to the people of Christ is to literally disobey Christ and to spit in the face of grace. And I'm speaking to the choir, aren't I? We're not banging anybody up against the head. I'm not trying uh, against the head. We're not trying to cause any type of change in behavior and modify anyone's life or else. We're trying to emphatically learn more and more who Christ is and then because we know who he is, because we understand the severity of the gospel, See, the gospel is not a pleasant message. So why is it a good report? Because of what it accomplished. The gospel is about the righteousness of God in the flesh receiving the wrath of God against unrighteousness in the place of the guilty. It's the hero dying for the wicked divinely and physically in that context. The divine God-man laying his life down. Therefore, all to him I owe. Therefore, loving Christ means to love one another. Loving one another means to put ourselves last. Putting ourselves last does not mean being a doormat. It means serving the needs of one another. Love. So Paul's instruction in the midst of all this stuff is to simmer down and pray and pray for all types of people because God has elect in all types of peoples. And we'll get to that grammatically and exegetically in a couple of weeks. But then we pray and we see prayer. You notice that Timothy is telling Paul, I mean Paul is telling Timothy to what? 
for the church to pray. If we go to Philippians, Paul is instructing the church. If we go to Corinthians, Paul is instructing the church. If we go to the book of James, James is instructing the church. We go to his pastoral letters, Paul is instructing the pastors to instruct the church. So nowhere in the New Testament is there any place that we can personalize and identify intimately within ourselves, myopically, that the instruction is for me, myself, and I. Same thing in Matthew 6. That's, a, that's where we're going now. Let's go to Matthew 6. Because Paul's instruction is for the people of God to pray. Now, should we pray at home? Yes. Should we pray by ourselves? Without ceasing. Paul makes that clear. Turn our thoughts to prayers. Instead of thinking, speak to the Lord. Listen, read the word. But prayer is the missing foundation. Prayer is, without prayer, let me do it from the negative. Without prayer, our lives are like hovering over a black hole. And a lot of good stuff and a lot of good discipline sort of soars by us very quickly and then just vanishes into the ether. Just gone. But with prayer, it's a stopgap. With prayer, it's a brick wall. With prayer, there's something to stand upon because it is a discipline. So Paul is saying, pray. Pray. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving for all people. And pray specifically that we live a disciplined, godly, dignified, quiet life among them. Now, we'll get to that next week. So in Matthew 6, why are we going to Matthew? Why are we going into the Gospels? What what in the world? Well, Matthew 6, if you look in verse 5, we see Jesus giving instruction to the masses. He's in the middle of this teaching. He's been talking about all sorts of things. He's teaching the people truth about himself, who he is, and their righteousness, which is imputed to us. It's not our own. It's not obeying these things. But he's also teaching the people that the reality of what they had concluded in the culture by the elites of their spiritual lives were, was indeed not the right conclusion. Or were indeed not the right conclusions. These conclusions were not correct. They were what? Cultural. They were manipulative. They were extracurricular. They were outside the boundaries of what God intended for His Word to be because that's what well-meaning academics do is that they become in and of themselves their own law and then they become the standard by which they interpret the Scripture and then they hold everybody else to that standard and then all of a sudden no one measures up but them so everyone must look to them to lead the way. That's a cult. That's a cult. That's the, the mixing bowl of manipulation. And beloved, it happens every day. It happens at work. It happens in the neighborhood. It happens at school with our children. It happens while we're sitting there watching television and browsing Facebook and browsing TikTok and browsing all the other pit-pops and tweets and toots and everything else that comes out our way. I used to know how many words I heard in my head every, month, every week, every day, excuse me. 
And I used to know the statistics of how many words I saw, but with social media, I don't know what it is. I mean, some of us see a million words a day just in the notifications on our cell phone. <laughs> Shut that stuff down. But Jesus, Paul is commanding the church to learn to pray. So I guess the next question is, how do we pray? And that's why I wanted to go to Matthew 6, because a lot of times, first, we think that the Lord's Prayer is a recitation of what is quoted. I mean, if I say, what is the Lord's Prayer? People say, oh, our Father, who art in heaven. I mean, what does that even mean? Does he draw up there? I mean, you tell somebody who art in heaven, a little kid, like, what's that mean? He got crayons. I mean, you know, that's, that's not what it is. Our Father in heaven, who is in heaven. Hallowed. What does that mean? Is he scary? It's the hallowed woods. Hallowed ween. Exactly. Holy. Halloween means holy night. You don't sing, oh, holy night on Halloween, though, do you? No, you learn a little bit of um, physiology and stuff. The knee bones connected to them and all that kind of stuff with the skeletons walking around. No. Holy is your name. Statements. Listen to Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. What does the word hypocrite mean? It's a transliteration of the word in the Greek that literally means in English actors. People playing a part. We're all actors. Life is a stage, you know. It's not a new philosophy. We're all actors. So when you pray, you must not be like those who put on a show. That's what hypocrite means. You're putting on a show. You're pretending to be something that you really aren't. Okay, we're all actors. Let's get over it. For they love, and what is specifically he's talking about? Those who put on an act. For they love to stand and pray. I remember when I was invited to go pray at the Capitol in D.C., and we were at the Lincoln Memorial. And this guy had all the sound system up there, and he just runs over there. Brother, why don't you pray for us? <laughs> and I was, you know, this is a little arrogant. I said, sure. So I looked around, and I saw all this stuff, and this came to mind. And I thought, let me be the hypocrite against the hypocrites. So I did. I put on an act. And I prayed in like manner of a hypocrite, Against hypocrites, I said, Lord, forgive us <laughs> for putting on a show. Because you know who we pray to? Our Father in heaven, who is set apart above all things in his name that we do not know except Jesus the Christ, who is not the Father. He is the Son, but he is our God. We don't need a microphone for God to hear us, you see. That kind of stuff. So here are these people that love to stand and pray in the synagogues. To love to be heard. As the old comedian from the 80s would say, the King James prayers. Oh, Lordeth, Godeth, Thoueth, Beeth, Witheth, Ithith. And all the stuff. And, and they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. And they stand and pray on the street corners. Why? That they may be seen by others. Because when prayer is prayed, proximity is not necessary. Audible words are not necessary. So when we pray publicly, we do it audibly that we may stand together and affirm that which is being prayed to God, not to one another. But they do it so they may be seen by others. Truly, and that doesn't mean that everyone plays in public wants to be seen, but Jesus knew the hearts of these people. He could make this judgment. 
That's why I said I was a hypocrite myself. Because sometimes we just follow the patterns of our culture and think that it's okay. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Brother, thank you for that great prayer. I mean, I participated in the National Day of Prayer on our, on our campus here just a little week or two ago. It's a fantastic time to pray. Other men and women went and read their prayers so that all could hear. Nothing wrong with that. The motivation is the point. The instruction to the corporate church is this. Check the motive. When you pray, go into your room and shut your door. So this is just personal prayers, right? And pray to your father in secret. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. I don't have time to get into that, but God's not giving out cookies for if we pray correctly. It's not like benefits. You get to heaven, he's like, look at all the coins you sir, you made. <laughs> you know, gamified everything. You can't even like anything without that anymore. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. For they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So then... Instead of praying like they pray, Jesus says, pray in this way. So this is not a prayer in and of itself. But it can be. If we know what it means. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us as our debts as we forgive, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So there's some proclamations. There's some things that we are saying when we pray. And there's a stature of prayer. And then there's some requests. And when we pray corporately, we need to understand that this is the model. This is the model. So as Paul is teaching Timothy to teach the church how to pray, we need to recognize that public prayer... In the assembly is perfectly fine, but we don't need to make a show of it out in the world. We don't need to make a show like politicians do. Nothing gets votes like praying for people. <laughs> Shaking hands and kissing babies. Remember that back in the 70s and 80s? So let's go through this. Our Father. Our Father. Plural, our, corporate, we're together, we're standing, we're all children, we're all under one head, and that is father. Which father? Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Moses? Who is it? Obama, Bush, Biden, America, India, China? Which is it? No, in heaven. That father. Oh, any spiritual father. No, our father in heaven. Our father. The one who has given us the gospel of grace. Sovereign and free. The one who has revealed himself to us through his people, through his prophets, through his apostles, written down in miraculous fashion, divinely orchestrated, divinely equipped to establish the security and the validity and the longevity and the prosperity of his word. It is there we have this father, the father who breathed into existence all that was not and it came into being as if it had always been. 
from nothing. Little theological tidbit, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. God created all things, and every person in the world believes that. Every scientist believes that. Every biologist believes that. From nothing came everything. But not everybody gives God the glory and the credit for it. They answer it away in some other ways. It doesn't make us better. It makes us objects of grace. And it's not a fight that we need to fight. We don't need to convince people that there's a Father in heaven. We don't need to convince people that he created the world. We need to pray to our Father in heaven corporately. And if we're all his children, then we have a requirement. We have an obligation. We have a commandment to love one another as he loves us. Holy is your name. The word holy, the word hallowed, the word sanctified, it means to be set apart. It's to beyond the normal, set differently, put aside. So for us to be holy, that means we're put aside. We're not like everybody else. We're not common. We've been snatched out of common and put in a different place. We've been put in the body and the blood of Jesus. We've been put into the kingdom of his light. These are all Pauline phrases that we find throughout his writings. So here, holy is your name. So when we pray, we're praying to our Heavenly Father, and He is our Heavenly Father, not just my Heavenly Father. This is 90% of my, in my, in my opinion, and my experience, and it's anecdotal, I understand, but in my opinion and experience, that this is 90% of the problem with the factions in the body of Christ throughout my lifetime is that we forget we are one in Christ. And when the flesh of some people can't stand that reality because uh, somebody else may not be, act, know, understand, apprehend, comprehend, or live according to their standard of what someone must be, then they find ways of peeling that away. So they can pencil in a little bit of stuff. They say, okay, here, I'm going to add some things. What does it say about adding to the gospel? And binding other people to those things. Don't do it. John, I like John's imagery. I like John's expression. In the latter part of his apocalypse. He says, anyone who takes away or adds to this will receive all the plagues therein. I mean, that's a staunch warning, isn't it? Anyone who causes, Jesus would say, one of my children to stumble... It would be better for them to just go away, to not exist. Because we have a Father, our Heavenly Father. And somebody say, well, I don't have to feel out that toward unbelievers. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Love your enemies. You've heard it said, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm telling you right now, that's wrong. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Because that's what sons do. That's what daughters of God do. 
You see? Well, I don't do that. Am I not a... No. That's not how we rectify and justify ourselves before the Father. Faith alone in the finished work of Christ that God grants us. We rest. See, faith as... We're going to teach some theological things. Faith, repentance, uh, you know... Uh, sanctification, this kind of stuff. We're going to do some of that over the summer when the crowds are lower. (laughs) But we believe in the promises of God. He grants us that. Faith in the person of Christ, in the finished work of Christ. There's a rest there. There's a satisfaction there. There's a quenched thirst there. There's a satiated hunger there. That's what divine faith looks like and then the other side of divine faith is that we grow in our understanding doctrinally of these things in a deeper way but love your enemies for he god our father makes his sunshine rise on evil and good and sends rain on the just and the unjust for if you love those who love you what reward do you have? Do, you not, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect. So how are we doing? And we'll never make. Our perfection is that Christ is our perfection. Christ obeyed the Father in everything. Thought, word, deed, desire. Christ is our righteousness. So is that not motivation enough to hear his words of teaching about how we should pray? Well, there's a context of Matthew 5 and 6. Absolutely. And we know what it is. But I'm using this as a proof text to show that Paul knew what it was too. And then he gives application of that understanding. And if Paul's wrong, we have no gospel. Your name is holy. Father. So if we're his children, then we are holy like he is. We bear his name. His name is set apart. He's our dad. We have the same name. We're set apart. Hallelujah. Right? This is the beauty of the gospel. How did that happen? How did I become a child of God? Only by his love and mercy. See, and if we don't have that mindset and that stature when we pray, we've missed the boat. God's nothing but a big genie that we hope we can satisfy. Christ is satisfactory to him. Hallowed be your name. In this next sentence, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a statement. It's not a request of God. It's a statement. It's a statement of sufficiency. It's a statement of authority. It's a statement of sovereignty that we understand and, 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 and attest to and apprehend the reality of whose we are and who our Father is and what it means to be Elohim, what it means to be God, what it means to be Sungtai, or whatever language you want to say it in. It is the whole purpose of the word God means the highest of all things. That's what it means. It's not His name. It means the highest of all things. Our God's name revealed to us is Jesus Christ. And the Father, His name is hidden. And the Spirit is just called God the Spirit. One God. 
in three persons eternally. So these things, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a recognition of God's authority and sufficiency and sovereignty. Your will is coming. Your kingdom is coming. This is what's happening. It is here. It is there. It is everywhere. What have, what will take place, God, is your will. If it be your will. Did Jesus not pray that way? Father, thank you. Please take this cup, but not my will, but yours be done, Father. So it's not asking God's will to be done. We can't ask God for his will to be done. We can't say, okay, God, we're going to pray that your will is done. And in, in the sense that if we don't pray, your will's not going to be done. That's nonsense. God's will is done. Now, it seems, what is it? Like, is this just semantics? No, it's a very fine, not even a gray line. It's a very fine mist. But if we're not careful, we open the door too fast, it'll blow it away and we won't recognize it. But, beloved, it is so important to know, as we started the sermon out this morning, it is easy to be thankful and to trust in God when things are well and when things are going <coughs> excuse me, our way and when things are pleasant and when resolutions are taking place. But it is impossible to trust Him in the antithesis. It is impossible to, to hold fast and go, oh, this look at my house, it just blew up. Praise the Lord. I needed to paint that room anyway. I mean, you know, nobody says that. Some people may. I've met some people like that, but there's always a pressure. There's always a straw that when it hits the back, it crumbles you. And then in our weakness, he is strong. God isn't looking for us to carry along some of his burdens so that he can say, look at that. That's, that's my boy. Go ahead. Run that ball. I mean, you know, that's my girl. Stand firm. Be bold. No. Broken. Crushed. Perplexed. Shattered. Weak. Your kingdom is coming. Your will is done in this earth as it is in heaven. See, panentheism and other mystical ideologies of, of world religions can easily say, you know, well, God is amazing and powerful and he created it all and he sort of started like a top and he's just watching it unfold. And he's got control of heaven and his abode, but buddy, it's like a pinball. Y'all even know what pinball is anymore? It's like a pinball machine. Ding, 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 And he's hoping we get the timing right without tilt and get that flapper where it needs to go keep that ball in motion. No, God is in control. His will is done. It is taking place right before us. And then we ask God to do three things. Three things. Give us our daily bread. Now someone's thinking, I don't want to just eat bread. You see how literal we take that? It's about, it's about provision. If he is our father, he loves us. That's how 
He's our Father. That's how we're His children, because He loves us in Christ Jesus and satisfied His wrath for us in Christ Jesus and imputed the righteousness and the perfection and the obedience to Christ to us so that we can stand before Him and He can say, those are my children. So if He's our Father, He loves us. And if His kingdom is established and His will is done in every realm of creation, earth and heaven, then by goodness He can handle our daily needs. Now, I've heard a lot of commentary on this. Well, what's a need and what's a want? Well, anything you want bad enough is a need until we figure out it's not, right? Some people say, well, I need this or I need that. What happens when relationships fall apart? Well, I need that relationship. Well, what happens when it doesn't reconcile? Are we praying for God to change things? What about when we pass away? We can't change. So there is a sense in which everything we think we need is something that we really don't need because what we really need and what we really should desire is that which God has sovereignly purposed for our lives above all things. So this is why the testament of His sovereignty is before our requests because it is the filter through which we ask. And what should we ask for? Anything we need. We ask in confidence knowing that if it's His will, He will give it. Knowing that whatever the will of God is for us, if it happens on our terms, or not our terms, but in our ideas or, or, or what have you, in the way we think it should be, great. If not, great, because what happens is where God is, but we still petition Him. We still ask, because what does that do by asking God? It gives an understanding of where we truly know our hope comes from and our sufficiency comes from and the provision comes from. There's no such thing as a self-made man. There's no such thing as I work really, really hard and look what I accomplished. If the Lord wills. Yes, hard work pays off if the Lord wills because there's a lot of people that work really, really hard and then they get cancer and die. There's a lot of people that work really, really hard and then one of their employees steals everything. And there's other people that work really, really hard and they never get it going. There are people that study and just can't get it. People that sew and just can't sew it. <laughs> never reap anything if the Lord wills, you see? So we, it puts in perspective, Lord, you are providing this. Thank you for providing. Thank you for giving me the strength. Thank you for all that you've done. Continue to provide as I have need. Lord, I need this. I need healing. I need happiness. Ask the Lord for it. Give us what we need. Please, provide for us knowing that He is the only one who does. And forgive us our debts. I wish this was literal. Forgive us our debts. Everything I owe to anyone, wipe it clean. Goodbye, Sally Mae. I mean, you know. Goodbye, mortgage. Goodbye, groceries. Just go in there and get it for free. Forgive us our debts. He's talking about the debts of sin. Now, some people argue about this because they're not quite understanding the, 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 the tension here. 
Some people think that forgiveness comes through asking, and that's true. But these are sins that we commit. Our Father, corporately, these are things that we may not know about one another, that we may not even be doing willfully. These are things that we need to just be mindful of that we may not know about. We know our personal sins, right? We know our attitudes, our actions, our intentions. We know all sorts of things about ourselves. And we know that we are not God. We know that we are not the Lord Jesus. We know that we are not perfect and that we, if given the opportunity, could go sideways in a second in our actions. But they all start in the heart and the mind. But what this does when we pray, Father, forgive us of our sins. Our sins. Because there are things that we don't do right. There are things that we are as a church that we are never going to accomplish correctly. There are attitudes that I have bred in this body that I don't even know of yet. There are things that I have not even noticed that I have let go unchecked. There are things in your lives and the lives of others that one day it may hit you like a truck and go, Whoa, look at this garbage that I've been involved with. Look at this sin. Look at this gossip. Look at this stuff. Look at this attitude, and we'll be defeated. But in the sense of our praying, we pray, Lord, there is sin in me, and there is sin in us. And we are individually and collectively guilty of sin that the Christ has died for and set the record straight. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for any of us, and more beautifully, for all of us. There's no condemnation. Because we are the children of God in the Lord Jesus Christ who has settled the debt for our Father who is righteousness. And we are free, but we are not sinless. And you might forgive me if I say something ugly to you and kick dirt in your face. You may have a stature of forgiveness for me, but it goes a long way when I see that I've sinned and I say, I'm sorry. Because if we're not saying I'm sorry, it means we haven't seen the sin. But we don't say I'm sorry in a defeated sense. We say I'm sorry in the posture of sovereignty, in the posture of fatherliness. We say I'm sorry boldly. There's the adverb. How do we say it? Boldly. How dare we boldly say, I sinned against you. Forgive me, Father. And not cower and crawl and whine and come in backwards. Because we're going to the throne of grace, not the throne of justice. Mercy's been given already. Mercy is there in Christ. This is the gospel, right? So the gospel dictates our prayer life. The beauty of sovereign and free grace establishes our attitude and our hope in the context of our prayers so that when we get the instruction in a minute about praying for politicians we're going to learn how to pray and not be bogged down when we learn to pray for our enemies we're going to learn how to pray and not feel suspicious suspicion is of satan every time unless suspicion is grounded in no i don't think every time I'm not talking about in the justice systems. I'm talking about in the church.
probable cause does not exist inside the body of Christ. <laughs> the lawyers in the room are laughing. Yeah. Forgive us our sins. As we have already forgiven those who sin against us. Because Jesus will say in verse 14, If you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, neither will your Father forgive your sins. Your Father forgiving sins. We are forgiven. But beloved, how dare we across, how dare we cross the idea that we are not to live in a state of forgiveness and reconciliation when that's the very foundation of our standing before God. And you look at the illustrations that Jesus gives the, that he talks about in front of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he talks about the, the, the guy that owed like a million dollars and he begged the king not to throw him in prison forever and he says, okay, I'll forgive you. I'll wipe it clean. Not we'll make payments. I'll wipe it clean. And he goes out and he shakes down the dude that owed him a dollar. Beats him up. Has him thrown into prison. When the king found out about this, he destroyed that man. That's the mindset, see. This is not conditional. This is not theological teaching in the sense of tit for tat. It's not quid pro quo. You do this, God will do that. If God, it's not that way. The gospel is not that way. It is a gift. It is a standing. It is permanent. But beloved, if you don't think God doesn't establish temporal consequences when we disobey him and we hold animosity in our hearts, you have got to be kidding me. He does. We will not experience his judgment and wrath but we will experience the temporal consequences of his discipline. Hebrews chapter 4. He loves us. We're never going to throw our children away when, when they're learning to navigate life and learning to keep their mouths shut and learning not to act like they grown when they can't tote it, when their butt can't cash the check their mouth just wrote. Well, that's it. You ate potato chips in the living room again. I'm done. You better pack a bag, boy. You got five minutes. Boom, kick him out on the street. Here's your dog. I ain't feeding it. Matter of fact, the dog obeys. Bring the dog back. No, we correct it. That's what discipline means. Correction. Establishing the right pattern. Focusing on that, that, that brings intimacy and aligning things with the way they should be. Orderliness. Paul is teaching this letter in an attempt to find order in a church that was not disordered, but had a whole lot of stuff going on that could cause it to become upside down. So that when the elders of the church say to the people who are frustrated, disgruntled, assumptive, and, and, and suspicious, there is a manner in which we will and must and always will follow in order to establish the reconciliation, the resolution of these things, and you will fall in line with that, and they buck the system, so be it, be gone, good riddance. Oh, no, I have to call myself back and say, oh, i got to pray for them. I have to, for what? Forgive them. So that when the decision for them to not submit to the Scripture is established in history as a fact, it is on them and not on us. Now, how does that look? In our lives right now, you see? People take offense. But it's not about offense. It's about God is not offended. We are, we are free. We forgive our sin, those who sin against us. 
And verse 13, this is something I've been praying for myself and for you every day for months now. Father, lead me not into temptation. Now hear what that says. That is subjecting our daily walk, our daily thoughts, our daily desires, our daily interactions, our plans, and everything else to God's path. Don't let me fall into my flesh, Father. So no matter what I've planned for the day, no matter what I experience, do you grumble under your breath? See, I grumble under my breath. If people were to walk, they'd hear me talking. What was that? Nothing. You don't want to know. And I find that sometimes the pettiest stuff causes me to get the most frustrated. The pettiest stuff. Stupid stuff. Like the imbeciles that drive. Who are these people? They need to go somewhere else. Little Shetland ponies in the middle of the desert. That's a perfect place for these non-driving people in the Statesboro. Freshmen, well, that's what they call them. <laughs> Why does that upset us? So it's a temptation. Leave me not. What does that mean? I need to go nowhere? No, I need to learn the disciplines of putting the sovereignty of God and His fatherly affection in the gospel of Christ as the, as the epoxy fill of my life every day. It's a discipline. And how does that happen? It starts with prayer. How is prayer effective? Hearing the word of God on an ongoing basis. How is that discipline worked in and out of our lives? By being in the assembly. You can't get what I'm laying down by watching it on the television or watching it on the live stream. You can't get it. Now, you can understand the principles, but you can't live it. There's no instruction for people by themselves. There's no instruction without an elder and deacons and, 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 and a mass of people who are completely different, who are in a lot of different ways in different places in life, economically and socially and everything else. There's, there's no instruction None. There's no way to answer any of this in application. That's why so many people find themselves in a cult. And the cult starts with my ideas. And what I know my God says is right. Well, if you're not in the context of what God says is right, then you're not right in the context in which you live. Unpack that later. I might have made a mistake. Deliver us from evil. Father, help me walk in a path that by focusing on who you are and what you've accomplished for, for us, help me walk in a path where I'm not tempted to sin. But yeah, we get to the end of the day and we have more confession than we have praise because we don't start our day in that context. So if we go and we see what Paul is teaching to the elder of Ephesus, I want people to pray for all types of people, for people in all types of position. And I want you to pray that we, as the church, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior. Listen to that. This is good and pleasing 
Christ alone establishes not just the example, but establishes the perfection necessary. But it doesn't mean we lay it down and don't strive. To disobey in the name of grace is just stupid. <laughs> to ignore the truth in the name of mercy is ridiculous. Paul says it cannot be. A true shepherd of God's people emulates in the teaching and the instruction and the living and the learning and the discipline of Christ himself to extreme failure. But we emulate it just the same. There are some good people out here in the world who can mimic the voices of famous people. but they're not those people. And we can mimic the lifestyle of Christ-likeness, but we're not Christ. Yet in the jury of judgment, in the, in, the, in, the, in the scales of righteousness, we are free and innocent. Not because we grow into Christ to the point that it matters, but that we are found in Christ forever and ever and ever because His death satisfied God's wrath. Therefore, let us walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've gotten and the Christ that has saved us and set us free. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to worship. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who were not able to be here today. Lord, I pray that you would call them and, and, and urge them to be in fellowship. We need one another. Father, I pray for those who are sick today and those who can't travel. Lord, I pray for those who are going through trials. Lord, I pray for our government. I pray for our kings and those in high places. Lord, I pray for everyone who is in a position of power that we as your people would, would live a life dignified and quiet. Father, I pray for the legalist in us all and I pray for the antinomian in, in, in us all that, that we would that we would just lay that aside and rest in the gospel of grace, sovereign and free, and that we would live a life according to the promises that you've given us in your word, even when it's impossible to be thankful and it's impossible for us to trust. We know that you will hold us and guide us through the prescriptions of your means of grace in the life of your people to grow us and to teach us and to guide us. So we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for this privilege. We thank you for this awesome, glorious, satisfying gospel that is ours in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.